I'm Seth. I'm Ariana. And this is the Pop Cult Podcast. And you might be wondering why you didn't hear our typical opening theme song. Well, Spotify for Podcasters, which is the service I was using to uh, upload my segments and then edit them together, has removed the ability to edit uh, things. So the theme that I had created through some sort of AI thing didn't cost me any money or take a lot of time is now lost to the ether. So you'll be hearing some new music. I've had to figure out how to put together the podcast in a slightly different way, but it should still be available uh, to you wherever it is you listen to podcasts. If you're listening right now, today, we have a very interesting episode. We are going to be looking at the children's or two children's films of George Miller. One of his children's films is a sequel and we hadn't seen the original. So I figured it'd be better to start there. So we will be talking about Happy Feet. Yes, Happy Feet was written, directed, and produced by the man who created Mad Max. <laughs> and then before we talk about that, we're going to talk about another movie he did that was a sequel, Babe, Pig in the City, which he also wrote, directed, and produced. And they are very much George Miller movies. Yes, they are. Uh, so for Babe, he has just won a shepherding contest at the end of the last film. Farmer Hoggett refuses to make money using the pig's fame, though. However, an unexpected injury occurs that puts Farmer Hoggett in bed long-term, recovering. The bank comes a-calling about the payments on the land. So Mrs. Hoggett and Babe have to head to the city in order to raise funds, in order to repay that loan and keep the farm as theirs. And that's the premise of the movie, essentially. Um, Ariana... Before we talk about Babe, Pig in the City, I want to talk about our relationship with George Miller's work. So I have had you watch the first three Mad Max movies in preparation for Fury Road, which yes. we've seen Fury Road twice. Yes. Um, we uh, have also seen The Witches of Eastwick, which he, I think, at least directed. I don't know how much. He probably wrote it, which was Jack Nicholson, Cher, Susan Sarandon, Michelle Pfeiffer. Mm -hmm. Wasn't as big a fan of that movie, but it, I still loved it. it. Yeah, it's still a unique thing that's all yeah. its own. And then also Lorenzo's Oil, mm -hmm. also with Susan Sarandon. I think it was at William Hurt as the husband, possibly. I You're know. thinking of John Hurt, I bet, yeah. when I said that. William Hurt is, uh, he would uh, be a long, I could bring up, you know, <laughs> you're never going to get it. This is, I realize who I'm speaking to here. I would have to show <laughs> a photograph tonight. But you know who he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which was based on a real life. A story of I forget the disease, but it was this oil that caused like the the muscle tremors to calm down. Yeah, but yeah. it was a really, it was like really intensely emotional. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of like George Miller does. And then most recently, we had seen a, that three thousand years of longing with Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba, which was okay. Yeah, it was fine. So we'd seen, you know. We know who George Miller is. Mm -hmm. We know his style, mm -hmm. but we had never seen any of his children's movies. And I'm going to argue at one point that Happy Feet might not be a kid's movie, but we'll get there when we get yeah. there. Babe Pig in the City. I want you to take me through how you felt when the movie started, how you felt in the middle of the film, and then how you felt when the end credits were rolling. So at the beginning of the film, I was increasingly stressed. I think because um, in the first Babe film, it's a little bit more cozy. It's this pig trying to like, who gets adopted by the dogs and who is like rejected by the father figure. It's very like 
pull at your heartstrings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this one, I felt way more stressed out because I think animals in peril really does that to me. And these are real animals, not CG animals. No, they're not CG animals. And I think I get also stressed out at the idea of what the training or the situation is. You're sort of animals. You're sort of like processing on a meta level of the filmmaking. Yes. And um, the thing is like, this film is not supposed to make you feel comfortable and cozy. It is supposed to make you feel as if like, what babe is supposed to feel which is like he's out of his element he was very secure himself in the farm but in the city he's dealing with different dynamics well they had to because in the first movie he's out of his element when he goes to the farm because he was born as like a factory farm pig yes so they basically ratcheted it up to okay he now is used to the farm what would be uncomfortable for somebody used to a farm a massive city and during the film it became this weird realization of oh shit this is something beyond what i thought it was this is beyond a children's this is beyond a children's film this is something that it is obviously wrapped around with this idea that you want the parents and whoever else is watching the film with the kids to enjoy it it is it touches on death it touches on being out of place. It touches on what it means to be human. Yes. On like class division. Yes. And it's <laughs> it's all done so well. And it's, and yeah, the death thing, there's this like ever present threat <laughs> looming over everything. And I think it started with the Farmer Hoggett well scene. Yeah. It's like, there is this concern that he like, that he died. The way it shot. I mean, yes. he could have died. <laughs> and um, I think it was this thing that like, it's it's one thing that I need to touch is I realized George Miller is a big, big impact on my childhood because I used to watch this. I think it's like the third Mad Max film. Under the Thunder, or uh, Beyond Thunderdome. Where he's with the kids. He's just a raggedy man. Yes. I watched that a ton of times as a child. Probably a film I wasn't supposed to watch, but I watched it a ton of times as a, as a child. Two Men Enter, One Man Leaves. Um, I'm sure that was a favorite of your brother's, right? <laughs> and then like uh like the witches of uh, eastwick like there are like images burned into my brain because of this man and watching this film and then looking as we are towards like how much they got into metacritic how much they got like rotten tomatoes how much did they People got? don't get this movie i am upset if this movie <laughs> came out now it would be a24 would have put it out. Because I, <laughs> like I feel like I was probably 13 when this film came out. It was 98. Yeah. yeah. So there was a time that I think that people would be like, oh, you know, they don't make the fi- films like Land Before Time anymore. They don't make the films like uh, t- like American Tale where the kids are sobbing. And they then, don't have anything on this movie, man. Had me stressed the fuck out. It got to the point that I was just like, "What the ever loving fuck?" Like when Babe Babe is being followed by these junkyard dogs. Well, chased, chased, right? It is an intense chase sequence. Like these, like, and it is so intense because it's like these scenes from the prior film but that are done so well that they're quick 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 and they're like it's like as babe imagined his short life 
flash before his eyes. <laughs> We're doing Roscoe Lee Brown, who he was the narrator in the first one, uh, a black like actor, very distinct voice. I think he did a lot in theater. A mm -hmm. uh, perfect narration voice, like his. He has the gravitas to like just for everything to hit and you said it felt like you were watching a really well-written children's book come to life on screen yes because of the chapter breaks it that was they the did yeah. it was a chapter book. which were in the first movie but i think work even better here oh yes and it's just there and then there's like this of course the whimsy it's still there what oh, yeah. i love is that when babe looks out into the city the first time they get there with like the farmer's wife it is all the big cities they're put into one sydney opera house eiffel tower the empire state building the yes. golden gate bridge so immediately you're like oh they're signaling something to us anything could happen yeah we're in a fantasy world where anything is possible yeah and so it can it's one of those fantasies that can like you can understand why everybody has these different accents but they have no confusion as to they're from the same location um, and the city's never named the city is never named um esme hoggett which is like the farmer's wife is so funny and endearing in this film yeah i love how her character changes from being like oh this pig to just being like this pig is the most important pig in the world to, to me and like the overprotectiveness that falls into her because she's just like She's like, this is my author's pig, Arthur's pig. Like, she loves her husband, so in extension, she has to love this He pig. becomes their child. Yes. And I think it makes sense because there really isn't a story to tell between James Cromwell and Babe anymore. That was the story of the first movie. Yeah. They now have a bond. He loves Babe. Babe loves him. There's no more conflict between them. So if you want Babe to have conflict with a human the wife makes the most sense. Yes. And I'm sure it was probably like scheduling and things like that as to why Cromwell couldn't be in the whole movie, but that worked it out works. perfectly. It because works. I feel like he would have reasoned himself out of like the situations that she ends up in. Yeah. He's too calm to do these. Yeah. Things. And it's supposed to be like this, you know, this woman that I love like when she's taken away by the police, she's like, but I'm a grandmother. <laughs> like, it is an A cab movie. Oh yeah, because when she goes around looking for Babe, who's like actually still in the hotel, he's just in another room being trapped by the circus monkeys or like the clown performer monkeys. Apes. They're not monkeys. They're apes. Um, what I love is like she starts going around shouting, pig, 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 pig. And there's all these like bike cops out. And yeah. there's these cops that are staring at her, and she's like not you pig another pig she's like i'm not helping the situation um uh so originally when this movie was going to come out like the initial trailer showed it as rated pg yeah but then when it finally was released they had edited it down to a g if you watch this movie <laughs> this feels like a pg movie and that has me fascinated to know what got edited out like what did they play down there is literally a sex worker poodle in this movie yeah they don't like and she's just, it's just it, it's not even implied it's like straight up oh she's like a a prostitute who's a dog yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i think what's i oh god it's just i the reason that i'm like mashing up with is like well, i love this film i loved it in a way that i did not expect to love it i was just ready to watch this film thinking yeah. it was just Oh, it's going to be a cute child film because, you know, Babe 1 is really good. Yeah, like, I think Babe's a good movie. But Babe 2. What better the, just better totally. than Babe. It is one of the rare cases of a sequel 
surpassing the original. Um, I think the aesthetics are very interesting in that it's very dark. The tone can be nihilistic in a lot of points. Yeah. Uh, and it reminded me of, there's a little bit of like Tim Burton in there. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. also a lot of Barry Sonnenfeld, who directed the Adams Family movies and yes. in Black. Yes, and yes, he, yes. And, like, he did Throw Mama from the Train. Mm-hmm. And he has this kind of, like, dark comedy sensibility, which you could feel here. Like, Miller is a smart enough director that he knows he can't make this just a pitch black comedy. But he knows he can insert dark humor in there and still make it, like, palatable for children where they're not going to be scared. Um you can clearly see the filmmaking connections between this movie and Fury Road. And funny enough, Fury Road was going to be his next film on his docket. But there were complications in scheduling, and then he ended up doing Happy Feet next instead. So we almost got George Miller transitioning as <laughs> a children's film director for like the rest of his career. But I can see the filmmaking connections between the two. Like he... he like, of course, he made like the Mad Max series he knows a good chase and by god in every film in this is, and happy feet the chases, the are, chases so good. are so good because he doesn't remove any like tension like he doesn't go oh this is a children's film it's supposed to be like less tension he's like i'm gonna wrap up the tension you're gonna see from behind like from ba- like in front of babe and see behind and just be terrorized at the fact that like you're kind of like okay is he gonna get caught because i feel like he's going to get fucking caught and he's not afraid <laughs> to embrace peril. Yes. And sh- and let the audience think that these characters could die. Like this is a dangerous situation and like there's a big risk here. And so it invests you in the chase scenes rather yeah. than just being like noise and spectacle on screen. Um the suspenders balloon sequence at the uh big dinner, the charity dinner oh. at the end. So good. Visual connection with Mad Max. The pole benders. Remember the guys who scale those poles and they're kind of bending them back and forth to get onto Furiosa's rig? That's when he's like, he's like being like behind one of the cars and in Road Warrior and stuff. Yeah. And so it's like, I realized George Miller greatly appreciates a practical acrobatics performance. Yes. He loves, and that's why we'll, we'll talk more about this in Happy Feet about. Well, we'll talk about it a little bit here, but he is, I think there's few directors working today who have nailed the balance between when it should be practical, when it should be digital, and when it is digital, how to hide the seams. Yes. Because that was something when you, if you look at the behind the scenes work on Fury Road, there is far more there digital than you realize, but you can't see it because he understands lighting. He understands blocking he understands all these pieces of cinematography in order to make a shot look how you want it and to really engross the audience. Yes. And he doesn't, it would be so easy for him to slack off on a kid's film, right? The expectations are so low on children's entertainment, but he doesn't. He is as committed to this as he is to any other film he's ever made. Yeah. And I feel like this style of children's like, or family film. It's gone. Is gone because I think about like that film that we ended up watching with our niece and nephew that had to do like these two brothers get a house. There's a mouse, mouse hunt, mouse hunt. That was Gore Verbinski who directed the Pirates of the Caribbean movie. So there, yeah. there's a style there that it's supposed to feel like it's lifted from a children's book story, right? It's very rolled dollish, and I, I feel like that's been removed for a more modern setting. Well, we can think of a recent example of them trying to do that, Wonka. Wonka. 
and they failed. It's ugly as shit. It's not funny. There's no charm. It's not like they hired bad actors. They just didn't provide those actors with any material to work with. And they relied on shitty songs and poor characterization. And then when you watch a movie like this, where you're like, no, you can do heavy themes in a way where you're not like sanding the edges off and being all precious about it. No. Like kids can handle stuff. Um, I think the the class let's talk about some themes in this movie because oh, that's so where it gets, uh the thing that really was a like a stuck out to me hardcore moment was there's a bull terrier and i don't know if we ever get his name but he's one of two guard dogs that end up chasing babe early on in the film and the chase ends uh where they're in front of the hotel where babe is staying it's a sort of underground hotel that allows animals to stay there yeah where like the owner had to pretend that she was kicking out babe's uh like one of babe's owners only to be like no the neighbors do not want us so just come in here through the back door so there's like and it's also they bring in the canals of like venice as part of the architecture yes and so this guard dog chases babe to the point where he's hanging uh by his neck chain that he broke off and his face first in the water and this dog is going to drown to death so like that alone is like a really (laughs) intense image because it looks like a real dog. There's there's a good jumping back and forth between puppets and real dogs here. Yeah, yeah. And so it's he's tricking your eye. And Babe, and it's the one thing I love about this is the characterization of Babe is so consistent between movies as Babe is an honorable, brave pig. Yeah. And he's not going to let someone die, even if that person means him harm, because he's a good, I want to say person, right? Yeah, Babe yeah. is a big, good person. And so Babe, with his little pig nose, pushes a boat that's on the side of the canal over so that the dog can get up in it. And then this um, uh, monkey that uh, is working for someone that stays at the hotel undoes the chain. The dog is saved. And afterwards, Babe and this dog are having a conversation. Uh, and the do- Babe is just kind of implying, like, you know, and now you'll be a good person, won't you? And the dog is trying to explain uh, – I come with it is nature of of what kind of dog he is. And then the quote that this dog says to babe in this children's film, a murderer's shadow lies hard across my soul. (laughs) And that's how this dog like explains, like it's in my nature to chase after and want to kill things like you, because that's what I am. If that wasn't enough, babe without missing a beat, just looks at his dog and says, so should I have let you drown? And like, as an adult, you think about thematically what that's communicating is this idea of, are there people in our society that are just so intent on doing harm that it would be better just to let them die or kill them ourselves? Or as the movie kind of shows you is that this character doesn't have to be like that. This character is aggressive, but Babe finds a way for that aggression to be turned into something different yeah that is about protecting a community rather than just simply attacking things that enter a territory yeah and so that whole dog has his whole little arc there and it's like that line of dialogue a murderer's shadow lies across my soul that that communicates to me how seriously george miller was taking this movie that he's like yeah it's for kids but kids deserve something that is beautiful and a piece of art and poetry, right? Yeah. Children deserve poetry too. And then through that dog who is like basically telling everyone that you're supposed to follow what it is 
that babe wants right and because he's doing that like there are other dogs that are almost taking advantage being like oh we're so hungry we need a place to uh to live and he lets him into the hotel and it's also the vision of the, all these dogs that are living on the upper floors looking down going this is a problem we're letting strays in and that is the class moment where like for the example, the apes had got some food and he and babe's like, well, I think there's enough to share for everyone. And at first they don't want to do it, but then afterwards they end up sharing all the food with everyone. Yeah. Uh, the class divide thing is so interesting because it's stray dogs and cats and they belong on the outside and the animals that live inside the hotel worry about this riffraff coming in. Yeah. And by the end of the movie, the hotel animals learn that, well, the world doesn't view any you any differently than they view those stray animals. You're all animals to them. Yeah. And the one that really stands out to me where I was like, it almost kind of like choked me up a little bit in the movie was Thelonious, the orangutan. Yeah. Uh, because Mickey Rooney has a very small role in the film as Uncle Fugly, which is the most insane name to give him, uh, who is like a clown. He doesn't have a single line of dialogue in the movie that I no. can remember. And he performs at like, a children's hospital and he brings the apes along there's a uh, Thelonious and then there's like a trio of chimps and so Thelonious is always wearing like a full suit that was clearly like tailor made for him or for a child or something yeah and there's a moment where animal control shows up at the hotel and they round everybody up including Thelonious who has a pet goldfish which I found was interesting so he's an animal with a pet and I think that goldfish to him was like this totem that made him into a human. Like, because I care for an animal, I can't be one, right? Yeah. Uh, and so he gets taken to this animal shelter. Despite it, the fact he's showing submission. He's, yeah. He's he standing fight there back allowing the humans to take him. Because but he, the humans shatter the fishbowl. Thankfully, <laughs> Babe saves the goldfish. Don't worry. Uh, and so there's this great scene where they're all breaking out of the animal shelter. Because Babe is able to round up uh, some animals that didn't get caught. And Thelonious will not leave until he puts his clothes back on. And he keeps going, I'm undressed. I'm undressed. I have to put my clothes on. And everyone's complaining. They're saying it's not natural. And it's, they need to leave. And it's like you can feel Thelonious's like shame because he's like, I can't be one of them. And then like they go through the children's hospital and a child acknowledges him as like being a human. Like he, so he says hello to him and says his full name. And then the party, when he's sitting at the table. Yeah, and, like, the woman doesn't realize he's besides him, and then she looks over and starts to scream. And, but he can't sink into the mo uh, in the moment because um, Esme, like, our, like, Farmer Author's wife, is dressed up as Uncle Fugly. Well, she has his, like, balloon pants. Yes. Yeah. And that's where you get the whole, like, acrobatics thing. And that's where, like, Miller, he can do these great moments of, like, profound, like, existential, like, philosophy. And they pull your heartstrings in a way that doesn't feel manipulative. No. But then you balance it with this, like, incredible, like, slapstick visual comedy. Yeah. And it's, like, she, the actress that plays Esme did so beautifully well. I just, I hope she had the most fun during this film I hope that probably not expecting after her small role in the first movie yeah, to ever have anything. I hope right? that she is like beloved by the fans because 
like I do love the relationship between like him and her towards the end because it's like he calls Uncle Fugly himself. When you say him, you're talking about Thelonious. Yeah, Thelonious calls uh, calls Uncle Fugly himself, and he's talking to the other apes, and the other apes are like, "That's not himself. That's someone else." But he's like, "The essence is there." And so I can trust her. She can take care of me and I can take care of her. And how, like, I love also, like, within the film, the owner of the hotel isn't angry that the animals got caught. She isn't angry that they snuck in. She's worried for them. She's worried for them. And she's angry that the city doesn't love these animals the way that she loves these animals. Well, and then also living in her hotel, which I thought was a really interesting thing, are the trio of dogs. Because when I really started thinking about that, I'm like, wow, there's like a whole thing to unpack there. Because you have these two dogs that are basically agoraphobes. They're afraid of the outside world. Yeah. And they're always coming up with reasons to stay inside. <laughs> and then you have Fleelick, who's disabled. He has one of those like carts on his back legs. And all he wants to do is connect with people and get out. <laughs> and so it's just... He, like, he's blind. He can't smell very well. Like, I forgot. He was like, it was the duck that was with him. And they're like underneath the bed hiding from like animal services. And he goes... And the duck's sneezing. <laughs> and he's like, there's cats in here. I'm allergic to cats. He's like, no cats would dare. And then the camera pulls back. It's just like two dozen cats under it's the like bed. Dozens. And I also love like, the cat choir. What yeah, the hell was up with I love, that? Okay, so the mice that are always singing, and then like are like the ones that they, introduce the the chapter. They stow aboard the suitcase. They stow aboard, and like what I love is that they're just kind of like, oh, what is that beautiful music? And they see it's the cats, and it's being orchestrated by another cat with its tail, which I thought was fucking genius. There's like he's so good with like the little visual details, <laughs> and, like the 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 mice going, oh. <laughs> and then running the hell out of there but yeah i would i'm gonna say i wholeheartedly recommend bay pig in the city especially if you've never seen this movie it is going to blow your mind it is going to make you mad that we don't have more children's films this good that like address these themes and have complexity to them i assume you're also recommending this movie heartedly like honestly i think babe in the city would probably be one of my top Ten favorite films. <laughs> I think it's. The, I am on the verge of saying. I think it might be the best children's film I've ever seen in my life. Oh, that's high praise. I think it might be. No matter. I've never been very impressed by Disney stuff. Like technically, it's okay, and I think the songwriting in Disney movies is always really good. But I just don't emotionally like. It click. doesn't connect. Yeah, I'm just like it's a. I can recognize the artistry in it, but this was where I was like. No, like this movie is moving me. And I'm like, it wasn't something I expected from Babe Big yeah. in the City. It was like emotionally <laughs> Babe Big in the Big City. In the fucking city. Uh, but yeah, highly recommend Babe Pig in the City. It's an all timer. Unlike other penguins, Mumble is a gifted tap dancer, which earns him the wrath of the elders of his clan who send him in exile. Mumble then befriends the Amigos, who help him rediscover himself. That is the basic plot of George Miller's 2006 ch children's animated, I'm going to say animated film, Happy Feet. Uh, Ariana, first off, what were just your general feelings about Happy Feet? So... 
and maybe in comparison to Babe Pig in the City. Okay, so at the beginning of Happy Feet, I was not enjoying myself. It felt like a jukebox musical. It is a jukebox musical, for sure. And the problem with it is, unlike Moulin Rouge, uh, it was not a conversation. It was just layer upon layers of like, oh, I know that song, I know that song. And it just felt like really jumbled and overwhelming. And then suddenly the film shifts when he meets the Amigos. And then slowly but surely the movie starts to win me over and I'm starting to get upset because of it. <laughs> we got to the point that we were like, wait, what's the plot? Because they kept adding yeah. stuff, but in a good way. Eh, and we'll, the, talk. we'll talk. But it's, I, I think it was better than I anticipated it to be. I do agree it was better than I anticipated. And it, you're right. The beginning had me very worried, <laughs> which I think had to do with the quality of the uh the computer animation the the film used uh extensively uses motion capture and at the time was probably one of the most advanced uses of that there were apparently just millions of hours of cpu power used to like uh what's the word they use to render this film yeah right however the textures on the penguins were like nauseating. <laughs> like well, there were some really bad textures, and I think that's maybe just an artifact of the time period. It I, for me, I had a lot of problems with the textures of like the penguins that have like that mumble was a part of. When once he met the amigos, they're like they macaroni looked, penguins. I think they looked or great. Stone penguins me. or something. Yeah, rock penguins. But like the seals, mm -mm. No. when they're trying to do fur, it didn't it didn't look no. good to me. Uh, and I know that's like a minor thing. I also think that the lighting had to be just right. Sometimes, and I think they were trying to capture the way the light is in Antarctica because you do have essentially, you know, half a year of light and half a year of not just because of where it is. So there's this really harsh light. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that along with the textures helped. No. Because when they were in darker spaces and the light could be a little moodier it like the look of the film improved tremendously. Yeah. Uh, and maybe in like the sequences where there's the big blizzards and like the penguins are walking around in that circle mm -hmm. uh, to keep themselves warm. That looked great. Yeah. And I think the less light you had shining on things, the better. Um, Narratively. This film is all over the <laughs> yeah. place. This is like two films. Yeah, it is. Matched like maybe two and a half. Because when you think about it, there is uh, Mumble and the love story with Gloria. There's also Mumble and his adventures with the Amigos. And then there's Mumble and his relationship with his parents, Memphis and Norma Jean, played by Hugh Jackman and Nicole Kidman. Yeah. Uh, and these different plots don't, like, the Gloria plot feels like it wraps up halfway through the movie. Yeah. When he comes back. And that just feels resolved. So it was really confusing because I just kept thinking, okay, where are we going now? Like, what what's the movie? And, like, by the time he and the Amigos are on this, like, odyssey across the Antarctic tundra, I remember turning and going, "What what is the plot? Like, what what is the goal? Like, what are we trying to do? I think it, was, it felt as if uh, George Miller was trying to trick you into this movie. 
Like, it felt like he was basically going, oh, hey, we're going to start off like this is a common family film. But now we're going to introduce to you the idea of aliens, a.k.a. humans, abducting these animals. And it's going to explain why there's a lack of fish and why some of them are starving and why some of them have talismans, which is basically like uh, little rings for like soda cans, soda cans uh, get caught on them and the, the this machinery. Oh, and by the way, like uh, Mumble's going to get exiled from his group of penguins because he dances because he dances and he doesn't sing. And uh then he's going to get abducted by aliens and he's going to manage to communicate with them what's going on because of the tap dancing. Because um... the scene at the end where an entire colony of penguins is tap, tap dancing in sequence. And there's like the humans that got out of the uh, helicopter helicopter. And I looked at you and I said, these humans have got to start dancing. Right. <laughs> and then moments later, that's what happens. And it was one of those where I didn't hate it. I was like, it felt like a fever dream. That's what this this movie is so like, this feels like a movie that if you watched it as a kid and then you're a teenager or a young adult and you go like, was that movie real? Or was I sick when I watched that? Like if it hadn't been like such a big success and as, and I think it's also like a mix of, is it beloved or not? Because on Letterboxd it had a 2.9. And then on here, I saw like someone gave it a seventy nine percent, like on Rotten Tomatoes or something. Yeah, so it's a little confusing as to what the regard is, but it's also it's one that like if it was an underground cult film, if you were to explain the plot, someone would be like, "What the fuck did you smoke?" or "What what fever did you uh, watch that you were watching? Were you flipping through?" three different channels at yeah, the same time it feels like happy feet and happy feet sequel and like another ha- but there's apparently two more happy feet movie i think I and i think he, he wrote and directed the second one i okay. don't think he's involved in the third one if it exists so it does have me curious because i've seen people go oh if you thought the first one was like a mess you should watch the second one. Oh my god and i'm like what what how how could it be uh i think where george miller's greatest strengths are in this is in the cinematography of the film where he chooses to put the camera, how he chooses to block his action. So like where characters are going to move within a frame to what point this, you could really see a lot of the um, fury road in it. When mumbles being chased underwater, uh, Miller often point positions the camera directly in front of mumble. So mumbles coming at us and you can see the seal or the whale behind him. Yeah. And, that immediately reminded me of the way those chase scenes are shot in Fury Road, like the big yeah. opening sandstorm chase. Uh, and so like those those would like pull me back in, which is rare because in most movies, it's action sequences kind of like bore me because they just don't show you anything interesting. It's just kind of hitting beats and like, oh, I've seen uh, visual gags like that before or whatever. But this did feel a little, there was a much more thought put into it. And it is. It's a movie where I can't say I don't like it, but I can't say that I love it. 
Yeah, I think it's one of those films that when you're watching it, you can be intrigued by it. It's it's kind of like Babe, where you can't look away. There's so much going on that you don't end up looking at your phone to just be like, oh, what time is it? I'm going to check my emails or I'm going to send a quick text message. It It does engage you in some bizarre ways. I do find it very, like, the idea of, like, aliens that are basically like the humans abducting animals and then setting them free. Also like the sadness of when Mumble does get captured when he starts he talks to one of the other penguins and the penguin is like Try oh, yeah. it's really great and you start to realize like that penguin has gone insane and, and he starts having like Hallucinate, waking hallucinations dreams he's, kind of. he's eating and he sees his family and it's like it's okay you should eat and he's like no there's enough food for everyone and it's this heartbreaking thing where he is slamming fish against the wall trying to get this imaginary version of his family and friends to eat that he knows they're starving but you're talking about like the last 20 minutes of the movie yes and that's where it's a long journey to get there it's great when we get there like the, i would say the last third of this movie i wouldn't change a thing i think it's pretty solid but the journey to get <laughs> to that place is so all over the place like the opening sequence of this movie is so disorienting. So it does many... not it does not like guide you into this world. It's just no. hey, look, it's penguins. And then they're singing like fucking prince songs and shit. Yeah. And you're like, what, what what what's going on? And the movie kind of explains it. The thing that I don't understand within the rules of this movie, and this is such like a nitpicky thing when you're probably just supposed to have uh, you know, suspension of disbelief. But it's clear that these penguins aren't having direct contact with humans, hence why they view them as aliens. And it makes sense. Antarctic uh, animals do not live in environments where humans are commonplace. So when they do encounter humans, it has to be a strange experience for them. Yeah. It's an organism they don't have a frame of reference for. And so I thought that was very clever where you know, the seagull who's been tagged around his leg is describing it as if he was abducted by aliens and probed or something. Yeah. Right? Uh, but then how do they know all these songs? Because these are songs that exist in the human world. They're human songs. And the film never really gives any kind of fictional justification for this. No, it's supposed to be like the heart song and it's just like that. But how do they know them though? <laughs> I, I have no idea. It's supposed to be just like it's something that they can hear within like their chest. Well, because I, I wondered at the beginning of the movie it starts in outer space and you're hearing the songs as if they're being broadcast. Yeah. But then the camera like zooms in on Earth to Antarctica and I wasn't sure if that was supposed to be visually communicating something to me. But I've never heard anything about, you know, penguins being like living radio receivers. Mm -hmm. Maybe they are. And that's just a fact about penguins. I don't know. But that was so odd to me well, because humans are such a part of the movie. That's, if humans had not shown up, then I would have been like, oh, it's just kind of like a fictional conceit. But there are humans there, and these are human songs. I think it has to do with the elders, which is so fucked up that we're trying to explain happy feet. But happy feet lore. lore. Because, like, the elders... They do know more. They do know more, and I think it's supposed to be they've encountered humans. They just don't want to talk about humans to their people because it's going to lead them to believe, like, that... Uh, 
to just give up or just hope that these humans take care of these things that they won't. Um, but it is at the beginning with all the singing, with all the different songs. It's a lot. It It's so disoriented until, like, Mumble ends up with the Amigos. And I kind of like that idea because even then they're like oh well you can dance we can dance but you're that's so cool the way you dance yeah and how like oh he's getting through like this acceptance thing and when they don't sing which i like that of the idea of oh just because you know your the culture you come from does something doesn't mean everybody does that yeah and it's like this also interesting thing that when they do sing it's like in a response to something it is a response to someone's sadness or it's a it's a quippy reply to what's going on and they all get together to help like mumble like win over gloria even though it's like later on he rejects her which is like it's an interesting premise like him just being like oh you think you're so great but i have something else that i want to go do and i don't want you tagging along and it just it was a movie that you almost wanted it to be more about him building up this friendships and then dealing with the aliens, but there's so much going on. Yeah, I think that's the weakest part of the movie is it wants to be a love story. It wants to be a story about the environment. It wants to be a, a story about an outcast finding his place. Yeah, it wants to be about like the dad not accepting him and forcing him to like like to do what everyone else is doing. And like there are moments where each of these plots has like strong scenes. Yeah. But collect like especially the Gloria love story, I did not find like compelling in any way. No. It felt very formulaic to me. Mm-hmm. Uh and it's essentially I realized like, oh, this is just Rudolph with penguins. Yeah. When you look at the, just the the overall story structure and the way, you know, oh, it's someone who's born with an ability that makes them different and they kind of go out in this odyssey and meet these, you know, ragtag group of friends and they find that their gift is that, that they're the thing they thought was a a uh, a liability is actually a gift. Um because you touched on a lot of things there. The what about the amigos? I thought they did very good as comedy relief, but we're still interesting characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Robin Williams, of course, he does dual roles where he plays Ramon, one of the amigos, yeah. but he also plays Lovelace, who's the head of that like penguin Isn't tribe. Is he the narrator? I think he might be. Yeah, okay. yeah, it sounded like his voice. Um, but I think the Lovelace character was interesting to me because uh, it showed another element of the the environmental theme in there. Because you mentioned before, he has a uh, the like six plastic rings that they use for soda in the United States, and he has one of them around his neck, uh, and talks about it as if it's his talisman, and he can communicate with the great spirits with it. Yeah, and eventually, like that becomes a whole subplot. The movie spends like a lot of time on as he's choking to death on this. Yeah, so they go on this too fat because <laughs> they go on this journey to like cut it off of him. Yes. Um. And that creates this like intense bond between Lovelace and Mumble, mm-hmm. our main character, and the scene where Mumble uh, decides he is going to single handedly go after the humans, and no one else is going to have to risk anything, and he plunges off that like iceberg, mm-hmm. and Lovelace's I forget the exact quote, but he's just like, "I will remember you, Mumble, <laughs> and I will tell your story," <laughs> and like that was like a it was both a scene where. There was humor in it, but there was also like a genuine connection between these characters. Like yeah. Lovelace 
is could easily be some kind of like job of the hut villain or he could easily just be like shallow comedy relief but he actually felt like a real character who you liked after a while you were like oh he's not like a bad guy and i think it's also like that orca scene with all was so good that's where like the action sequences that's george miller excels at that the orcas once again that was another instance where like it didn't always look great depending on the lighting and the angle the movements but then when it did look good i was like those look like real killer whales yeah like (laughs) the the movements were something that i was really surprised by and i think we also talked a lot like about how the close-ups were not great but the wide shots yeah the wide shots if somebody were like oh just snapped one of the wide shots it's like oh these are penguins i'd be able to be like yeah yeah that's real like photograph quality yeah yeah. like especially the water scene when he go plunges away i were kind of like oh shit that water yeah when the way the camera tracks over the water and that was one of those where i was like oh wow you can really see and it's one of those where like is it real water or is it cg water like and it's I couldn't tell the difference at a certain point. I couldn't. Uh, but once again, it was those animal like feather and fur textures. That's where the movie revealed like what was real and what wasn't. Uh, where he gets taken to the uh, zoo or aquarium, wherever it is that he's put, uh, I did feel that was really emotionally effective, especially the way they chose to show how animals lose their minds. It's almost an anti-Finding Nemo. Yeah. And the way Finding Nemo presents the captive fish is they're still okay, right? They're not like mentally ill. Like here it was, no, when you don't allow a, when you put a penguin in an artificial version of their environment and they're not able to be part of a colony that's the size and scale that they're, they've evolved to be in, they will lose their minds. And I mean, you've heard stories about like dolphins who've, you know, held their breath and killed themselves in captivity. Yeah. So I do like that they included that bit of, you know, Locking these animals up so we can look at them is not good. It hurts them in the long run. Mm-hmm. It isn't where they're supposed to be. Uh, I like that they used real humans in the movie rather than like a Pixar movie where you would animate them. Yeah. Because it added, it was just a visual choice that made the film a little more interesting to look at. I think it also makes this interesting thing where like penguins could recognize each other as different even if they're from the same species and have like, they could differentiate each other. But when they were like, the humans would not be able to see that because they're not a part of that world. Uh, The. So one of my questions about this movie is, is this a children's animated movie? Oh, I, I kind of think it is, but I think it's also trying to trick the parents into thinking it's a... Or is it like a really good family film? I think it's a good family film. Because it doesn't feel like a movie you just put on and your kids would be distracted by it. I mean, the dancing scenes, I can only imagine how popular this movie was uh, at the time it came out on DVD for like parties and gymnasiums and elementary schools, yeah. right? Like you've put on a scene where they're dancing and singing. Yeah, and I think it's it's kind of hard because I know like you said that they use motion captured with an actual dancer. Well, Savion Glover, I think, performs Mumble's body in the yeah. movie. And it was kind of hard to enjoy the dancing because you can't really see like the way that you would actually see a tap dancer. Well, there's no legs. Yeah, there's no legs. And so I we all we hear is really the tapping. So I could not appreciate it 
as much as I wanted to. There was like a lot of penguin foot close-ups for the yeah. fetishists who were into yeah. that shit. But like when it's further <laughs> away and they're like doing like movements with their bodies and with the tapping, that worked a bit better. It also worked better when it was felt like more of a cure. Uh, what what's it called when it's like all together? It's a group. Chore- chore- like a choreography. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, but when like it was, but when it was just him, it just was a hard sell up until, and it was probably also just being like, no, this will look, look cooler when you have a group of penguins doing the same thing. Because all I could think is when he was like tap dancing, I was like, I've seen this in Mary Poppins, and it was much more impressive on Mary Poppins. <laughs> but Mary oh Poppins, yeah, the penguins. Yeah, I liked. Uh, one thing I thought of while we were talking is the um. The elephant seals. They're not in the movie for a long time. They're rendered that was texture that was rendered really well. Yes. Like they it, looked realistic. Like the way they're they moved their mouths. And I think it would And make, they're like weird trunk nose yes, thing was. But really I good. think it's also he's being very particular on how certain animals move their mouths, so they looked really good. And some of us might get hung up on the way like the penguins moved their mouths, but he was being realistic of like, well, it's going to be the motion that it is. It's just like a beak. Yeah. There's not a lot of movement. Like they're saying words that they couldn't form with their mouths the way they move them. Yeah. But that is one of those where you just kind of go with the movie. Yeah. And I feel like he respects it on those angles. It's obviously a movie about the environment. It is a movie that is like not set in our reality, which kind of makes me wonder what, the second version was because in this one it was implying that like happy feet by dancing in front of these humans were like we're going to stop fishing and we're going to move the fishing over here. So what is Well they just kill another species by <laughs> overfishing there? Uh it was the idea for this movie apparently came to Miller while he was shooting Mad Max 2, the Road Warrior. Mm-hmm. Uh so you remember that one? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, humongous, I believe, is the villain. They've surrounded the fort. Yeah, it's Mad Max Two. So it's 1981. Like, yeah, it's, is, Mad Max Two is what everyone thinks is Mad Max One. If yeah. you don't know about the whole. And the first Mad Max is like, it's okay. It's not bad, yeah. but it, the sequel's so much better. Uh, so he was apparently taking a break. He was at, and he met what he referred to as this grizzled old cameraman. Yeah. whose father was a part of the Admiral Shackleton expedition to Antarctica, mm-hmm. which I think was like the first to reach the South Pole, if I okay. remember my history right. And so this cameraman told Miller, you should make a movie set in Antarctica because it's such a unique and interesting looking environment. And so Miller was like, wow, one day I want to make a movie that's set in Antarctica. Like maybe we'll film there. Maybe we won't be able to, but I, I want to think about this. And then it's odd because I, I found that he's, Miller has been very involved in like environmental activism. It's a big theme in all his movies. Like even Mad Max is about like how humans destroy the environment. But the thing that I could not find any information on is why this is a musical. (laughs) Like I know why it's Antarctica. I know why there's these environmental themes, but I don't know why there's all of these songs in the movie. And I get that it's because, well, penguins have songs and that's how they identify each other. But I didn't think pop music, like, how do we get there and why these songs? Yeah, it just, I feel like as if somebody gave him the idea, like, well, what if, like, when you're there, it just sounds like you're switching over different radio stations all the time? And, um... I think it's because these were available in the Warner Brothers music catalog. That's the main reason why these songs are in this movie. And, like, it's this weird thing that, like, for me... The voice actors were good, but I was a little bit distracted 
with uh Nicole Kidman's like Norma Jean like breathy thing. I almost wish because I kept thinking, oh yeah, that's Nicole Kidman, and that's like well, they're supposed to be Elvis and Marilyn Monroe, right? Uh, like that's okay. Memphis and Norma Jean. So it's like this is the child of Elvis and Marilyn Monroe. Okay, I just I I kind of wish they had gone a different route with that. I it was a little distracting for me. The um. There is like a pretty decent moment where near the end of the movie that does involve the mumble and his father subplot. Yeah. Where he finally has this moment with his father who's treated him very cruelly uh, yeah. through the movie. His father very much wanting to conform with the rest of the colony and the elders. And then when mumble is finally going there to invite his father to be a part of this dance that they're going to do. And like Hugh Jackman delivers the hell out of the line where he just goes, you know, something like, I've never done right by you for one day of your life, boy. And it's like, you're like, oh, wow. Like to see a father, like admit that to his son yeah. and it, and delivered in a way that the line really hits the point, but in a, like somebody thought about how to say that. Right. And the yeah. same way that line from babe pig in the city about the murderer's shadow across <laughs> his soul. Right. And so it's Miller. He does. He does really think about like the voices of his characters. He thinks about how they can say things that aren't just blunt. Yeah. That there's a poetry to the way people speak. I think a lot of times what it feels like with the, especially like the family films that we've watched with uh, George Miller, it is he's almost cramming in as much as possible, even though for someone like me with Happy Feet, I was like, uh, this would do better being like a mini series of sorts when I think about all the stuff that he's trying to include in there. But I also understand that he's almost like telling children, this is how your life will feel like. There's a lot of things going on and then boom, you're an adult and now you have to make your own choices. But I do feel like it felt episodic. Like when yeah. we get to the halfway point, I felt like we were done with episode one of Happy Feet and now we were on episode two. Yeah, I was just, it's, it's hard because it's like, again, when I started the film, I really was not enjoying it. And then it was winning me over. And now that we talk about it, it's not that I'm first set in the first feeling. It's just, it was. It's a mixed bag. Yeah. It's so much. There's so many little things that make it better than you expected. But there's so much that feels like was left undone because there was so much of it. Like, you're just kind of like, okay. They bit off too much. Yeah, it's sort of like, all right, you're going to make the mom being, like, the one that accepts him more. Well, could we have a little bit more scenes with the mom being that? Or develop a little bit more different things on how the dad didn't do right by him, except just being like, you need to conform, blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, the characters were painted with such broad strokes. Yes, and then, like... Brittany Murphy, who did Gloria, had a great singing voice. I think that was her singing. I don't know. Um, and but it was so little of her character because he's just like, which made sense. He's like, I have something more important to do. And I love that when he comes back from like being in the zoo or aquarium, whatever he is, uh, he's confronted with Gloria and they're making you seem like Gloria has had children with this other dude, but I don't know what, if they did have like, no, I don't think so. I don't know. Like that was, it was, it happened so quick. There was so much stuff in yeah. this movie. And I love the fact that he's like, yeah, that's great. You're someone else. Guys, guys, the aliens are going to come with a few minutes. <laughs> I do think Robin Williams is the MVP of this movie. He did so many voices. He did so much going on. And like stuff that he would not be allowed to get away with now. 
because Lovelace is kind of like black voice. Yeah, and Ramon Ramon is clearly Latino. A Latino versus the rest of the amigos are voiced by a Latino cast. Carlos Alas Rocky, who did Rocco from Rocco's Modern Life. But it's like it's stuff that he would not be able to get away with. They would not cast him in these roles. But would you recommend Happy Feet? I mean, it's not bad. What would you say? I would say if it's a movie, if you like uh, pop music from like the 80s and the 60s a little bit. Kind of, it's a mixed bag. Yeah. There's also if you like, like jukebox musicals, if you aren't really don't really care too much about a very streamlined plot. Uh, and if you like Robin Williams, yeah. <laughs> you should see it. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Pop Cult Podcast. Make sure to check out our show notes for any relevant links to things we might have mentioned, including to our website, popcult.blog. Also, make sure that you subscribe wherever it is you listen to podcasts so that you'll be notified when new episodes of this show are up. If you visit popcult.blog right now, you'll find that we're here in February, right around the middle of it, and we have been doing a Movies About Movies series, so watching films about different aspects of filmmaking. Uh, Coming up in this next week, We're going to be reviewing the film The Player, directed by Robert Altman, uh, In the Soup, starring Steve Buscemi, and Oliver, or Olivier Assayas, I think is how you pronounce his name, his film Irma Vep, which I've always heard very, very positive things about. Uh, Next week on our podcast, we are going to be doing a Powell and Pressburger double feature, the two very famous British filmmakers. We're going to be looking at two of their World War II movies. Uh, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, followed by A Matter of Life and Death. So very aptly named. Uh, If you enjoy what we do here on the podcast and over on popcult.blog, we would ask you to consider supporting us on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. I want to thank our current patrons, Becca and Matt. They donate at the writer's room level, which gets them the ability to pick one movie a month for us to watch and review. If you do that, you can include your thoughts on that review as well. No matter what level you donate uh, at at the Patreon, you will get access to our patron-exclusive podcast. We've got a few series up there now. We've got a new series coming up in March, which will be a uh, GM-less tabletop role play we're going to be doing. So if those sound like things that are exciting to you, check out our Patreon. Think about donating. Well, until next time, you keep listening. We'll keep watching.